Denise Paxton and Angie and team. Good morning. How are we doing, everybody? Good. Hey, glad you're here uh, for worship this morning. We continue to worship through God's Word. Uh, we're going to begin in a moment in the book of Jonah. So if you have your Bible, uh, grab that and turn to the book of Jonah. We'll be there in just a couple of moments. Hey, we want to take an opportunity in our moment of, of corporate prayer uh, today to, to highlight in so many ways what we got to experience, or at least a number of us got to experience yesterday uh, in our community. Uh, Chelsea Fest, Big Kaboom, was yesterday. How many folks attended? Yeah, it was a ton of fun, right? Uh, that's a really, really great thing. And then I'm just really thankful that we get to be a part of this community and, and even more thankful that as a church, we get an opportunity to, to really, hopefully, live out the gospel as we take part in that event. So this year, uh, really, really thankful. Brian Marbury did an amazing job of helping connect us uh, with some other churches in the area. And so this is really, in so many ways, the first time our campus was able to formally connect with some other gospel-centered, Christ-centered churches in the area so that we could partner as churches and then offer the Kids Zone, sponsor the Kids Zone for the community at Chelsea Fest. So it was a rousing success, really, really cool and deeply thankful for anybody that volunteered their time and came out uh, and, and helped our folks get connected uh, to other folks in the community last night. An amazing thing and an opportunity, uh, an easy way for us to really recognize and see and get a big picture about this little town that we live in and, quite frankly, how big it is. There's all these relationships uh, that we have with one another, and sometimes we take for granted the people that are here that are around us. The people that are truly our neighbors that, that live in and among us here in Chelsea. Last night was a great picture of that. And I think probably encouraged a lot of us to, to really see, man, i got to live out the gospel in this place. We got to do it uh, with other churches last night as we celebrated our nation's independence. And it was an amazing thing. So I think it would be really appropriate today, uh, just in light of that event uh, to, and with our recognition drawn towards that, to take a moment to pray corporately this morning for a couple of specific things. One, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters that are part of of other churches in this community that are held in Christ, that are preaching the gospel. Let's pray for them. And two, let's just pray for our community, the, the, the town in which we live, that people would come to know Jesus. Because I'm going to just throw this out there, and you, you might agree with me, but I would imagine that there's a substantial more amount of people that are at Chelsea Fest last night than we have in our collective bodies of Christ that are worshiping this morning. All right? Truly. And this is an opportunity for us to pray that not just through moments like that, but for the way that we live with our neighbors and the way we communicate the gospel as we worship together on Sundays, that people would come to know Christ. So let's do that now. Let's pray for churches in our area and also for our community and our neighbors. Let's do it. If you will, pray with me. Heavenly Father, Father, we're thankful for the independence that you've given us and, and to be a part of this great nation. Father, we're thankful for this town that we live in that we get to be a part of this community. Um, Father, we're so thankful for these incredible schools and the, the, and the incredible things that this town offers us, the businesses, the workplaces, the community that we experience together. Father, as we live our lives here, God, we want to live out the gospel. We want people to see and experience your goodness, to know that you've pursued us in your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray these two things very specifically this morning. We pray for our brothers and sisters that are in this community, that are a part of churches, Father, that, that, that are yours. They're the body of Christ. God, for these brothers and sisters, we pray this morning, one, that they would continually preach the gospel. 
and that you would bring encouragement to them, that they would, that they would resoundingly share Christ with neighbors and that people would come to know Jesus through them. Father, cause us to be a faithful church alongside them, to preach faith alone by grace alone, and that only, Father. Father, we also just pray for this community as a whole. God, we have friends, we have neighbors, there are people that we shop for groceries with and buy gas with and play baseball with and connect to and live in in this community, and there are many who do not know you. Father, would you draw them into your body? Would you make them yours? Would you allow us to share your gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ for sinners like us with them? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning we are going to be in the book of Jonah as we start a series called uh, The God Who Pursues. Now, if you're like me, and I, I would imagine that many of you are, you're familiar with the story of Jonah. How many of us know the story of Jonah? All right? Look, we got kids in the room today, and I think this is a blast because you guys know about Jonah. What's Jonah about? We're not disrespectful and polite. I know we're not. What's Jonah about? Fish, a man swallowed by a fish, right? This prophet of God is swallowed by a fish. And so often, I think that's the only thing we really think about when we think about the book of Jonah. There's a lot more to the story. I've read like the little flap open children's books, and I don't ever really see much of chapter 4 of Jonah in there. The guy who says, like, God, I know you're merciful, and that's why I don't want to tell people about your mercy, because these are bad folks. The part about the plant that God gives, and then it dies, right? These are some often things that we don't think about when we think about this story, or they're even maybe subtracted or omitted from what we've read as children. But what is consistent with what we can know about Jonah from our past is that this story is miraculous. There's an incredible thing that happens But it's more than just one being swallowed by a fish and being spit out on land. We actually get to see more of, I think, us in this story. More of our neighbor. And ultimately, more of who God is. So here's the thing about Jonah. And we'll give a little background and then jump into the text today in chapter 1. But Jonah's a prophetic narrative. Now, Jonah sits in this set of books called the Minor Prophets. So it's going to be next to all the folks with the really cool names, right? The Amoses and the Obadiahs and folks like that. That's where you're going to find Jonah in the scriptures. But the thing that's unique about Jonah and it's sitting in the Minor Prophets is that Jonah is a prophetic narrative. It's very story-driven. And so what you get from verse 1 throughout the entirety of these four chapters that sit on probably just a page and a half in your Bible is this amazing story. It's really more akin, it's really more like the stories of Elisha and Elijah that you'll find in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. That's more of what this is written like. But here's the crazy thing. All of those stories and most stories that are prophetic narratives that talk about the prophets and the things that they do They're really positive toward the prophet. Jonah is not. When we read Jonah, we don't see Jonah shed in the best of light in a myriad of circumstances. We get this picture of who he is and some of the things that he, quite frankly, messes up. 
things that he doesn't do well, ways he's disobedient. And we also get the picture of the people who he's supposed to minister to who are also disobedient. When we read a story like this, one of the things that's most human, that's most natural for us to do, is to look into the characters in the story. To look into Jonah's life and say, what are the things that I would want to emulate? Or quite frankly, what are the things I would not want to emulate? The things I would not want to copy. What about the people in Nineveh? What about the the people that are on the boat that Jonah flees on? All of these different characters emerge. And it's natural for us to look at characters in a story and say, I want to do this or I want to not do this or I want to be that or I don't want to be that or I want to live like this or I don't want to live like this. Those are great questions. And quite frankly, that helps us to apply the truth of the scriptures to our lives and how we're supposed to live. But those are really questions two and three and four and five and six and so on. The main character... What we're drawn to in Jonah is God. When we read the book of Jonah, I think it would be most helpful if we read it through this lens. Answer this question. Not just what should I do, what should I live like, but this is the big one. What is God like? What is God like? That's the question that the book of Jonah ultimately answers. What is God like? What's his character? Who is he? We're going to see throughout this whole narrative, throughout this story, that God is a God who pursues. God is a God who pursues us. We're going to see that today beginning in chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6. Jonah 1, 1 through 6. It begins in this way. It says this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo down that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together, thanks be to God. All right, when I was a kid, uh, and you may have felt this too, like maybe, I'm trying to think, maybe like third, fourth, fifth grade. You start for the first time, you're writing a cursive, you're writing sentences, maybe you're writing papers to some degree, or at least a, a small like paragraph, book report kind of thing. I would do this thing, and I think a lot of us did, where we would start out and we would write a sentence. And as a kid, you just go, all right, period, and. And this was, like, really frowned upon, right? And I think they were a little overbearing with this. And I'm thinking, this language is tough. We need to offer some grace to each other. But you're not really supposed to start a sentence with and. One of the most unique things about the book of Jonah is it starts with and. When you read now there, that now is pointing to you and giving you context that this is happening now, but there must have been something that preceded this. There must have been something that has come before this. 
And this really beautiful thing is happening by the writers of Scripture where we're getting this connection to see that what's happening this, in this moment is actually connected to something before it. So we read the Bible and we have these things called books. Like there's the book of Jonah. And the way that it's separate from other books oftentimes will cause us to think that this is, well, this is in isolation or in a vacuum or it's in a spot where it's not connected to the other things. But the writer of Jonah is doing this powerful thing where he's helping hearers and, and folks that heard the Hebrew scriptures, that, that heard the, the scroll read aloud in the temple, the synagogue would know this, that it would be normal for this to start with and because this is not a story in isolation. It's actually a part of the entirety of God's story. So that Hebrew word at the beginning, the now, the vav, it starts with and. So this thing is being continued. And here's where we get this reality explained to us more. It's 2 Kings chapter 14. Because for you and me, when we read Jonah or hear about Jonah, we think of the book of Jonah. But where else is Jonah depicted in Scripture? This is 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 through 27. We get this picture of Jonah ahead of this moment. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gathapher. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Look back to verse 23 at the beginning of that scripture. And Dustin, if you'll throw that first slide back up. Let's just kind of walk through the story of what's happening here. There's this king, Jeroboam. He begins his reign in Samaria. And we just, right off the bat, we understand there's a character explaining verse here. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You you remember that language? That's judge's language. He's He's a king who rules poorly. He's seeking what he desires, not following the Lord. He's doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And so he doesn't depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. So this is Jeroboam that came before him. So this king is Jeroboam II. And this is who Jonah is going to come to. And Jonah, the same Jonah that we read about, that is one in the belly of the fish, he is the prophet who acts out and tells in the truth of what God longs to do for Israel. And here's the thing. Israel is being led into sin. They're worshiping idols. They're doing all of these horrible things. They're doing things that are truly evil in the sight of the Lord. But the Lord remembers his promise. And he does not blot them out. He does not take them away. He does not end who they are. Instead, he uses this one Jonah to declare and to prophesy to them this really incredible thing. That God is actually going to expand their borders. Now, if you know Israelite history and the the works of the Old Testament, this is how it works. One of the things that God would do to bless his people would be to enlarge 
their nation, to expand their borders, to give them more places for food and for produce and for crops and all of those types of things. It was a very beautiful sign of blessing to these people. But it's not going to last. It's not going to stay this way for long because if you look into 2 Kings 15, just one chapter later, and you can read for yourself the history of what's happening here, there's this group of people that take over these borders. And quite frankly, in so many ways, bring harm on Israel. This group of people is called the Assyrians. And so I know we're kind of diving into history here, but hang with me for a second because it's going to make a ton of sense in connection with what Jonah is doing. Do you know what the capital of Assyria was at this time? Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. This is the place that is the center of this horrible empire that not only is hurting Israel, but they're truly one of the most violent and terrible groups of people from a human rights and a captivity and a torture standpoint that the world has ever known. I want to share with you some of this uh, a story, just, just a basic kind of principle uh, or, or picture rather to help you understand who these people were. They were people who burned, their military would burn cities to the ground. They would torture their captives in unthinkable ways. And here's the way. They would take a captive and they would cut off one arm And cut off both legs. But they would leave one arm. And this is like, I I can't help but think of Monty Python in this moment. You guys seen the Holy Grail? You know, his arms off, right? It's much more grave than that. They would leave the one arm so they could shake the hand of the person that they've killed and mocking them. So this is not just torture, it is evil torture. It is evil murder. It is beyond just conquering or taking a land. It's beyond just undoing what God has done in blessing with this land. It's making a mockery. And it's doing it with this unthinkable pride and gruesomeness. These are the people that Jonah is called to go to. So this is an insult to injury here. Jonah is called to go and call out against the great city of Nineveh, against this group of Assyrians, to go and tell them to repent and turn from their evil that's come up against God, that he's seen. So Jonah, not only are we dealing with, hey, God, you used me, and I was a part of blessing Prophesying this expansion of land over Israel. And this group of people, the Assyrians, overturned that. They undid all of that. And now you want me to go and preach to them? These are the arm people, right, God? The people that cut off everything but one arm. This is the people you want me to go to? I'll be honest. It doesn't sound terribly inviting. I think Jonah gets a little bit of a bad rap here, all right? He's going to a tough place. And in his mind, it would almost be unimaginable that these would be the people that God would have on his mind, that God would think about. Look back into verse 2 and you see these words that this evil has come up. 
What this is really a depiction of, in so many ways, is something that we see throughout the biblical story of innocent blood. Because Assyria and Nineveh, this place in particular, is built on the blood of the innocent. That's what is the foundation of this city. So think about the evil that exists here. And think about it in relation to Cain and Abel. Do you remember what happens when God confronts Cain about his brother? And I think we're all really, really familiar about the idea of, hey, well, I'm not my brother's keeper, right? After Cain murders Abel, there's something that happens. The blood of the ground cries out. This is a theme that we see as we look into all of the scripture and recognize that God hates injustice and murder and violence. And yet this is how people continually act. And yet, God is pursuing these very same people. How do we know that? One of the things that I think is so beautiful about the scriptures is we read words in English and we don't understand the depth of what's happening there. When you look down at your scripture and you look at verse 2, and Nineveh is described as the great city, I think we can already historically understand that it's really not that great. Some bad stuff happening there. But that word great is not really describing the character of the city. It is, in many ways, describing the size of the city. It's a great city. It's a large city. At this time, upwards of 150,000, 200,000 people in this very concentrated city. But that word great can also mean this. It can mean important. So why would Nineveh be an important city? Our first response might be, well, this is like a military fortress. If the Jews of Israel could just be done with Nineveh, maybe they'd be okay. But it's not talking about military strategy. Here's why Nineveh is important. And here's the picture we get of God's character. Nineveh is important Because of the people who reside in it. This is a beautiful picture in the quickest way for us to see that this place is important. Because these people matter to God. They're created in his image. So in spite of all of this evil and everything that they've done. God sees them. That word, the evil, has come up before me. That, that word, those words before me ultimately mean that, that God is captivated by what's happening before him. The people of Nineveh have his attention. And the only attention in so many ways that we think Nineveh should warrant is the attention of God destroy these evil people. Remove them. Take them away. But instead, we begin to see what God is like. That he sent Jonah to go to these people. That he longs for his word to go to these people. And he wants to restore them and give them life. So just as God has called Jonah, God has pursued Jonah, God is also pursuing the people, the most unlikely of people, these Ninevites. God is pursuing them. 
we're starting to get a picture just early in this passage about how deeply God pursues. Look into verse 3 and you see this. Jonas flees the presence of the Lord. That's his desire. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So ultimately he goes down to, to Joppa. He goes and gets on a ship and he's trying to get away from God. I think a number of us who are familiar with the Old Testament and particularly familiar with the Psalms realize that getting away from God is not something that we can do. This is Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 10. It says this, Where shall I go from your spirit? And look at the language that's used here. Or well, where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is the word of the Lord to which we say, thanks be to God. Do you see the connection here even to the work of Jonah? All of these things that are happening in the Davidic Psalm are a picture of God constantly pursuing even those who seek to depart from him. And you're like, well, Jonah's a prophet. Doesn't he know this? Doesn't he understand? Doesn't he recognize that he's not going to be able to flee from the Lord? But the language that's used here refers to fleeing from the presence of God in such a way that Jonah was going to escape God to go into a place where it seemed like God was not. This is Jonah saying, I'm going to leave Israel. I'm going to leave this area Where everybody knows of the Lord. Everybody follows God. I'm going to leave this place. And I'm going to go to a place where God is not worshipped. Where Yahweh is not worshipped. Where anything and everything is worshipped. But God. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to flee his presence. Because I don't want to go and preach repentance. To the people who want to cut all my limbs off. I don't want to go and preach repentance to the people that have undone the blessing of God. These people are evil, and I don't want to go there, so I'm going to flee. Now we can look into verse 4, and you see what happens as Jonah flees. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so the ship that they're in threatened to break up. What do you see? And maybe most importantly, what do you hear when you hear those, or you hear that verse, rather? I want to tell you what I think a lot of us are inclined to hear and think. I do something wrong. God is angry with me and mad at me. I disobey, and so I'm going to face some really bad consequences. And we start to form this idea that God's feeling toward us is based on our actions. That what I do dictates his character. That truly, the things that that, the choices that I make, the things that I do, whether I go to him or run from him, that's going to be what decides how he feels about me and how he relates to me. But we get this picture in verse 4 of something that connects again to other places throughout God's story by this great wind. Now, it's very obvious that the wind is not something that just happens. It actually comes from God. The scripture there before says God hurled a great wind. So we know the agent. We know the cause of the storm. It's God himself. But 
If we look into what that wind is, what it means, I think we're going to see it in a very different way. Because that word for wind can also mean a couple of different other words. It can mean spirit and it can mean breath. It's the word ruach. It's the same word we find in Genesis at creation. The very breath of the Lord that creates. It's the same word that is used when we see the depiction of the Israelites crossing through the Red Sea. We think all the time about the Israelites moving through the Red Sea, fleeing from Egypt and escaping. But quite often, I don't think we think about how that happens. What happens? What does the scripture say about how that path is formed? It's the Ruach. It's the very wind. It's the very breath of God. So what we should see here in verse 4 is not a God who is mad at Jonah and who is angry. And so he brings this storm that could kill him and the people on a boat. Like this is how we view it. Like not only is God so mad at him, but other people are facing the effects of his consequences. Other people on the boat, their lives are in danger because of his great sin. And we can build this picture in our head that says, God's mad at me. I just don't want to make God mad at me. Here is the reality. This wind is compassionate. This wind is the very breath of God through which God pursues Jonah. He's coming after him. And it's in a stark way. It's a powerful way. Nonetheless, he is coming after him. Look into verse 5 and you'll see what happens. Then the mariners were afraid. And the mariners are always afraid. They're terrible at baseball. They have been for a long time. They're afraid of everyone they play. Um, That's not what this is talking about here. I can only see that sometimes. Uh, The mariners are afraid and they each, look at this, each cried out to his God. What does this mean? They each cried out to his God. All these people that Jonah's on this boat with, he went to a place where God was not. He went to a place where God's not worshipped. So he's sitting on the boat with these people, and they're all crying out to God. Effectually, this is what they're doing. They're saying, look, we got a God for everything. We got a God for rain. We got a God for wind. We got a God for not wind. We got a God for sun. We got a God for money. We got a God for everything. And this is what they're doing. They're like, let's press all the buttons and see what happens. Right? It's that, it's that it's somebody gets in the airplane that's never flown the airplane, and they're just flipping switches. They're just like, how do we get this thing off the ground? That's what's happening in this moment. These polytheists, these syncretists, these people that are a part of a culture that worships tons of gods are saying, everybody cry out to your God. Let's cry out to all the gods and see if we can get saved. And in the midst of this, they realize something. The captain specifically realizes that Jonah is down in the ship, in the inner part of the ship. And so this is what he does. He goes and calls to him. He says, what do you mean, you sleeper? And ultimately, he, in this language, he's saying, what do your actions mean? What are you doing? In this moment of distress, you would be asleep. Now, I want to tell you about my sleeping habits. And here's what it is. If my head hits that pillow, I'm done. I'm out. Like, you know those days, like a Sunday when we've come and there's been a storm Saturday night? And, and trees have been knocked over, power lines down, all that kind of stuff. And you strange people are awakened by these sorts of things, right? You wake up, you get here in the morning, you're like, oh, that was a crazy storm last night. And I'm the guy that's like, what storm? I didn't hear it. I just slept through it. I sleep really, really, really hard. But that's not what's happening with Jonah here in this moment. There's, a, there's a, several famous theologians and ministers who would describe that Jonah experienced something called the sleep of sorrow. 
Basically, he's dealing with so much anxiety and grief and anger and guilt that he's run from the Lord. That he's in a depressed, sleeping type state in this moment. It makes sense. He's given up everything. He's given up his country in so many ways. He's gone from his homeland. He's given up his vocation. He's essentially exiled himself from ministry. He's running the opposite direction of what he should be doing. And in a lot of ways, it almost seems as if he's given up every bit of character and ounce of who he is as he has run and he has fled from the Lord. And look at what is happening. God is still pursuing him. God is still pursuing him even in the midst of all this. And here's how we know that. Look down into verse 6 and we see something that is not just some sort of holy coincidence. Look at the way the captain calls out to him. It says, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. So there's moments in life where we have deja vu, right? We kind of like feel like we've been in that moment before. Then there are these other moments, I think, where we hear something really profound, really incredible, really powerful, maybe really emotional, and it connects to a moment where we've heard that same thing before, right? You hear this thing, but it's almost like it's coming from a different place. But there's this resounding theme in your head and perhaps your heart. This is what's happening in this moment because the words that the captain uses, he says, arise, and he says, call out. It's the very same words that God uses to call Jonah in verse 2. It's the very same words. So here's what's happening. Jonah is hearing the same truth from a different source. This is not a coincidence. This is God's providence. Here's how we know that. This sailor worships anything and everything. This sailor culturally would be the person that is furthest from the Lord. And yet God is even using this person to make Jonah reminded, to cause him to hear these words. Arise and call out. This is what he longs for Jonah to do. So God is going to these lengths. He's taking someone that has no relationship with him at all and he's bringing to mind, he's giving the call to Jonah to obey. To obey Yahweh, even though this person doesn't even have any sort of relationship with him at all. This is the link to which God pursues. So look at what we find throughout all of these verses this morning. Not just, and it's helpful for us, we need to leave this place today with the truth, with the recognition that we should not be disobedient. We should not run from that to which God has called us. We need to be obedient. We want to be obedient. We want to be obedient out of response to God's grace. Not to attempt to earn his favor. So let's not be disobedient. Here's the other thing we see. There's things to model in this story. There's things to live out. Hearing the call of God. Trusting in the Lord. Resting in Him. Not resting in our own anxiety and our own grief because we won't follow Him. But the biggest thing that this passage calls us to see, the biggest thing that Jonah is going to help us see, is that God pursues us. 
He pursues each and every one of us. And this is not, this is truly not a God who's ambivalent or apathetic toward us. God loves the Ninevites. He's trying to make a way for people who are the most evil people to walk the earth to repent. God is pursuing them. And God is pursuing you. And he's pursuing me. This is consistent with his character. This calling that God does, this pursuing, happens all the way back in Genesis 3. And this is the theme in so many ways of Scripture. It is God calling us. God coming to us. God pursuing us. When Adam and Eve sin, and they're outside the garden, what does God do? He pursues them. He calls out to them. Where are you? They do not deserve this. And yet God is pursuing and calling out these ones who are undeserving. It's so reminiscent of the entire picture of the gospel, particularly what we see in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. John chapter 1, verses 11 through 13 says this. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the word of the Lord, which we say, thanks be to God. And thanks be to God, indeed, that our God has come to us in Jesus Christ. This picture that we're going to see throughout all of Jonah is a picture of the character of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not just a prefiguring of a gospel that will come. It, for us, will be a realization of the gospel that is there, that God continually pursues us. So as our worship team comes and we prepare to respond this morning, this is the big takeaway. We get to respond to the God that pursues us. We have the opportunity to answer the call. For some of us, that may look like I'm beginning to believe these truths. And I, want to, I believe God's calling me to know him, to trust in him. This morning, there's an opportunity to do that. To truly come and say, I believe God's calling me. I'm believing in Christ. So I would urge you to come. And if not now, later. This, but don't leave this place without saying, I want to know. This one who loves me so much that he would pursue me to the very end, that he would love me to the end, even in the midst of all of my sin and all the horrible things that I've done. Because this is the reality of who we are. We're a Jonah and we're Ninevites. Sometimes we're both. If we're being honest with ourselves, we're the kind of people that run. You know this hymn and you know this particular line. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We feel it. The desire to run, to leave the thing that God has called us to himself in pursuit of other stuff. We're an Adam and Eve and we're a Jonah and we're a Ninevite and we're the kind of person that says, I know a better way. 
And there is no other way to experience all of the beauty that our heart longs for and so much more than us resting in the very finished work of Christ. The clearest picture of God's pursuit of us. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection so that we can experience this God who would come after us time and time and time again. So this morning, we're going to sing about that. And we're going to respond. And we're going to see and get a picture of this God that pursues us, that comes after us again and again. Not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ has done for us. So whether you sit, whether you stand, whether you sing, whether you look at these words and just think, respond as the Spirit leads you. But I would encourage you to see, if you don't see anything else, receive that this God is one who comes after you and I. Let's worship together.